Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about Spanish and Polish politics and their impact on the future of Europe. Often when people talk about the future of Europe, they focus on two other countries, France and Germany, and there are endless uh, traumas about the state of the Franco-German relationship and what's happening within those two countries. But I think it could be argued that at this moment in time, Europe's future is actually being shaped from quite different places, from opposite ends of the EU. Two uh, contests are underway which have enormous potential to change the continent's political map and which I think will have far-reaching consequences in the short term for the way that the bloc relates to, to Ukraine, to the growing debate on enlargement. But also, in some ways, these contests in Spain and Poland Uh, could actually have a big uh, impact on the shape of of the uh, European elections next summer and the way that European politics plays out more generally. Because at exactly the moment where the the Polish election campaign is entering its final phase and shifting into a high gear, there is uh, an enormous amount of political manoeuvring which is going on in Spain following their parliamentary elections in July. And that is also coming to a head. So, To help us make sense of these two important elections and what they mean for Europe, we have two amazing guests, an all-star cast, as we like to say, on The World in 30 Minutes. Joining us from Madrid, we have uh, José Ignacio Torreblanca, Nacho, who is the the head of our Madrid office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And down the line from Warsaw, we have Piotr Buras, who is the head of ECFR's Warsaw office and also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. Welcome to the podcast, Piotr Nacho. So why don't we uh, start with Poland, because that is kind of uh, a fever pitch at the moment. I was in Warsaw uh, quite recently with you, Piotr, and we were kind of watching... Uh, some quite uh, wild <laughs> developments in the in the campaign. We saw uh, this visa scandal uh, emerging uh, out of nowhere, which was quite a big shock. We saw um, the beginnings of, of the tension emerging between <laughs> Poland and, and Ukraine. Uh, but these are feeding into a, a kind of very polarized and complicated political system where there's a lot at stake. Um, maybe you can briefly just talk about what the, the current state of play is, what's going on. Uh, what the the big issues are as we head into the kind of final stages of this election campaign, elections which will take place on the 15th of October. Yes, thanks, Mark. And um, I think, you know, indeed, this Polish election has various high stakes. And and I think it would be not exaggerated to say that the the future of of Poland's democracy and European orientation is, is at stake. But the political uh, landscape is very complicated and and uh, the prospects for the selection very unclear because uh, it is rather unlikely that the ruling party law and justice will um, gain an absolute majority again uh, after eight years in, in power but it is also quite unlikely that the uh, liberal democratic opposition parties uh, there are three of them the big civic coalition led by uh, former president of the European Council, Donald Tusk. There is the liberal conservative third way and there is uh, the left. It is also very unlikely or rather unlikely that these parties uh, will gain 
taken together they will gain an absolute majority so that we we may be heading for for a hung parliament in Poland and there is a certain resemblance to the situation in in Spain with the far right party confederation confederacja being the the kingmaker and that makes of course uh, the situation very complicated because of course you you alluded to this very high importance, uh, high relevance of the Polish election for Europe. But um, it might happen that the picture won't be as black and white as it might look at the first glance, so that either you know, Kaczynski runs the country again for another four years, and that that's very bad for Europe. And and this is a very powerful signal that the right wing populists are are kind of still in control of, of of key players in the European Union, like Poland, or that we have a turnaround in Poland, a complete shift towards. Um, liberal uh, democratic uh, credentials and, and pro-European stance. It might happen, and it is actually the, the most probable scenario that, that we we are heading for a very chaotic period and very unstable, perhaps a snap election at some point in, in the spring or, or, or later in, in 2024. And even if uh, there is a uh, opposition-led government after this election, this, this government will have to to be tolerated by the far right, and thus that would be uh, quite unstable, and uh, also have uh, problems with uh, enforcing all those reforms uh, the, these parties are at the moment uh, promising the restoration of rule of law and so on and so forth because of the fact that we will still have the president Andrzej Duda until mid 2025 who will stay in power and he's a very committed supporter of the current ruling party law and justice and with his veto power can prevent any major legislative change so so this is basically the picture at the moment it's very very unclear quite intransparent and and probably not much will change in the next two weeks so that until october 15 when when the polls go to the vote we will have to live with this kind of unclarity and the stakes couldn't really be higher for the participants. One of the people we spoke to, who was a kind of leading politician for one of the parties, said, there's a question about whether I go to prison on my side or whether the other side go to prison. Yes, I think this is, of course, it might be, uh, might look or might sound a bit too dramatic, over-dramatized, but this is, reflects, I think, the level of polarization in the in the Polish politics, especially. Perhaps less so in society, but in the, poli- in the political elite, uh, I think that there is this uh, very strong um, emotion very strong sentiment that that this is really about uh, be or not to be for for both sides um, uh, almost literally i mean uh, so indeed the, the the people currently in power have to take into account that if they lose power they will face trials they will face um, real problems also on personal levels because they are responsible for violations of constitution for for another violations of of of, of law and and the on the other hand the representatives, the key representatives of the opposition need to uh, take into account that they may face prosecution for, for, for political reasons and and that that the, the should the PIS stay in power, the situation could, could become really very, very unpleasant for, for them. And want to go to Spain uh, very soon and I would quite like to, to spend some time afterwards 
you know, when we look at how these two countries are going to affect the the EU situation further, we can go more into this kind of Polish-Ukraine situation. But just before we do that, one of the things which was breaking when we were together um, in Warsaw quite recently was this was this kind of visa scandal, which is pretty uh, wild uh, thing to develop because you have this far right government literally holding a referendum on on migration on the same day as the election day, but at the same time it became clear that they've been selling potentially hundreds of thousands of, of visas illegally to people who've ended up all over the world. Do you want to just maybe very briefly explain both how that happened and how how it's playing out in the election campaign? So I think the scope of the scandal is still not clear. I mean, there, there is uh, the gist uh, of the problem is that uh, indeed the Polish consulates, uh, the Polish foreign ministry was involved in a corrupted system of issuing visas for, for people from Asia, from Africa, from, from other parts of the world, which runs completely in contradiction to, to the, to the narrative of the, of the ruling elite or ruling party, which basically says we don't want to invite any people from, from, from different cultures. And there were indeed uh, 200, 300,000 visas issued, but nobody knows really how many of them were sold, you know, illegally to the, to the people applying for, for visas. So, so this is quite unclear, but uh, apparently they are, what is, what is uh, proven is that around 200, 300 visas could have been really illegally sold, which is not a, such a huge uh, number, but, but of of course, nobody knows if, if perhaps it is to be expected that the, the number are, are much much higher. But interestingly, you know, this uh, of course it is is playing an important role in the in the election campaign. Um, it makes the situation much harder for the uh, or the task much harder for the for the PIS party to argue that uh, they want to prevent migration at um, any price. It's actually the opposite is true as, as this example presents, but. Interestingly, it, this, this visa scandal hasn't had any major effect on the uh, party preferences in the, in the uh, population. So the, the, the opinion polls still show that the PIS parties can, can um, enjoy a supported level of around 35%. The, the, the civic coalition, the strongest um, opposition party, around 30%. It, so nothing has, has really changed in that regard. What has changed is that the German government, decided to uh, introduce controls on the Polish-German border. And this is actually not in the reaction to the visa scandal, to be very honest, because these, you know, these are not people who, who have Polish visa who would be controlled and stopped at the border, uh, regardless of uh, whether they acquire this visa legally or illegally, but rather the irregular migrants, the smugglers, the people being smuggled into, into Germany via Poland. And they're and the numbers are indeed rising. There, are, there were thirty thousand people, according to a new report of the of the Polish auditors, uh, who managed to cross the Polish-Belarusian wall border wall this year, and um, around half of them managed to get through Poland to to Germany. And this is a real real problem. But but it shows only that this migration issue is, of course, playing an important role in the in the. In the debate now, there are uh, there, there are again frictions between Poland and Germany, accusations of Germany that were criticisms about Germany uh, by the Polish uh, government for 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 this decision and for for uh, allegedly meddling into the Polish uh, electoral campaign. So this is all adding to this very highly polarized um, outlook. 
Thanks a lot, Piotr. So we should probably switch to Spain. Nacho, you've done an incredible job of explaining uh, what's going on in Spain to all of us over the last few months. And it's been a, a really fascinating period. Um, everyone was predicting that we would see the emergence of a right wing or maybe a, a right wing far right government. And then the elections ended up creating a, a, a very kind of messy and inconclusive result. We just saw at the end of last week, the, the leader of the PP, the centre-right party, uh, Fejo, um, failed to, to find a majority in parliament last week. And it's now up to, to Pedro Sanchez to, to try to form a new government. Can you tell us what's going on and, uh, and, and what you expect to happen next? Yeah, you, you, you're right that um, the Spanish political situation has got a bit complicated. The truth is that sometimes people see Spain through just left and right lenses. And therefore, this is where things don't fit because, in fact, there are kind of a, this is a two dimensional space. You have left, right, but then you have nationalists or you have a third actor. So the truth is that Feijo actually won the election and that he could put together 174 uh, seats to support him to become president of the government, absolute majorities at 176. And the left, you know, the, the current coalition government only picked 152 seats in the election. They can complete that with some left-wing nationalists going up to 166. But ultimately, if Sanchez wants to stay in government, he would have to count on both the right-wing nationalists in the Basque Country, but also in Catalonia. More particularly, the leader who sought, um, you know, who fled to Brussels, Carlos Puigdemont, back in 2017. And this has upset and uh, uh, you know the whole political scene in Spain because it has brought back all the memories from 2017. Puigdemont was a marginal character in Spanish politics. In in fact, the socialists did very well in Catalonia and pro-secession parties were third and fourth in the region. So at a moment in which we thought that uh, you know, conflict in Catalonia was over and that Catalonia had been pacified, all of a sudden, you know, the votes of uh, Carlos Puigdemont, the most radical pro-succession kind of unilateral method for, for breaking up Spain, now they're absolutely essential for Sanchez to stay in power. And that has created a lot of political tension. You know, like uh, Spaniards don't argue, don't argue a lot about Europe. You know, there is nothing most boring to watch in Spain than a debate in the European elections. But we argue about ourselves you know, and Spain an incredible amount in of time arguing about Ourselves. Even though, you know, according to some uh, Oxford University metrics, Spain is the second most decentralized country in the world after Germany, there are still, you know, people who are questioning the, the model and the agreement in 1978 and want to push for self-determination. They are marginal, but they are very relevant in parliament now because Sanchez fell short to be able to renew his uh, majority. So now it's Sanchez's turn to try and form government, he will have to accept uh, one of the two conditions which um, pro-succession parties have put on the table. They have two conditions. One is an amnesty law. The second one is a referendum on self-determination. The second one he very clearly cannot concede. The first one is not really constitutional and it's very awkward that you would have amnesty processes in the context of democratic countries in Europe. You know, there are only three examples in Europe of uh, amnesties give, being given recently. One is in Ireland after the Good Friday Agreement. The other one is France on new Caledonian rebels. And the other one is 
happens in Portugal on transition and some of the uh, violent movements associated. So it's very awkward that you would grant an amnesty law to people who try to break constitutional order. That's creating a lot of tension. But Sanchez has decided to go and, and do that in order to secure his, his majority. And will it work? Well, I mean, Carlos Puigdemont and, and his followers, they're marginal. I, would, I wouldn't say they're totally rational. They are enjoying the moment because they are relevant now again. They know that if they do not support Sanchez, they will face a second election uh, after Christmas in which they presumably will not do well either. So they have to balance kind of their emotions to to try and secure amnesty and a referendum against uh, the backdrop of the fact that their numbers in Catalonia are really low at this point and that is the socialists that have won the, the regional election. So it is very difficult to, to say what it is going to happen. This decision is only going to be taken by one person, Carlos Puigdemont, who is actually in Brussels and, and, and probably his sense of reality and touch with Spanish politics. It's not a very fine-tuned. But the polls are now showing that the socialists would beat the Partido Popular if there were a new election. So Sanchez seems to be in a position where he wins either way. If there's an election, he could win it. And if there isn't an election, he gets to stay on as prime minister. Well, you know, Mark, that all leaders who trusted polls in Europe in the last five years are death or in the opposition. <laughs> you know, taking Sanchez already did this back in 2019 when polls told him that he should disregard Ciudadanos and Podemos and go for a second election. And that ended dramatically. At this time round in the last election in July, polls were saying that the conservatives would win a landslide victory and they didn't. So, you know, politics have become very volatile. A lot of things can happen during an electoral campaign. We see now that there, an, there is an incredible number of voters who say they sit at the center of the political spectrum, but that doesn't mean that they are moderates. It means that they don't find any political option which is satisfactory for them, and they vote in reaction to others. So uh, for Sanchez, it's less risky to try and sign an amnesty law with Puigdemont that, than face a second uh, election at this point. Okay. So we talked a bit about the kind of nitty gritty of these two elections, and I think people are interested both because Spain and and Poland are, you know, the, the fourth and fifth biggest countries in, in Europe anyway. There are a lot of votes in the European Council, large populations. But also because, you know, I think it, it's quite clear, for example, if there is a change of government in Poland, if Tusk um, replaces Kaczynski, it would completely change the dynamics between France and Germany as well. I mean, the, the, the Germans have been very traumatized by the, the extent to which the Polish-German relationship has, has kind of disappeared. Appear, has, has kind of uh, collapsed, but also uh, Sanchez has been, you know, very much a kind of progressive, positive force in the eyes of pro-Europeans um, in the European Council and other places, and during the Spanish presidency, etc. So people are looking at that, but they're also looking at it because one of the big questions everywhere now, particularly with migration coming back and other issues, is about the rise of the far right and questions to do about the relationship between the centre right and the far right. And we saw this coming out in the Swedish elections. It's a big debate in Germany about the extent to which the CDU, CSU should work with, with the AFD and the Freiwilla and other sort of parties. And it's going to be one of the big topics in the European elections uh, going forward. It'd be great to hear from the two of you what you think 
the big kind of biggest consequences from your national elections are for the shape of European politics more generally? Well, you, you could say that at some point, Spain is going to become a Jean Monnet outpost for Europeanism. Like people are going to do kind of Europeanism, tourism to Spain to see what is to have a really progressive government. Also a country in which uh, 76% of parliamentary forces are pretty pro-Europe, even federalist more than anyone else. This is a country that is uh, ahead and many others on, on, on migrations, on climate. Uh, and this is not, and, and, and this is to stay uh, also in terms of enlargement. Spain is supporting Ukraine accession and so on. So Spain has, is becoming a very awkward country in the context of current um, European politics. In fact, you know, the rumors, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't spread rumors because by definition, a rumor are not, you but it's obvious that Sanchez will make for a great president of the European Council after next year elections, you know, especially the Conservatives win. Very clearly, you would need a socialist to be president of the Council. So Sanchez could be that person as well. Uh, but, but I think that some of the capacity of Spain to push for these kind of goals will be thwarted or limited by the degree of kind of internal strife on domestic politics. But probably after the next election, you will have to see a moment in which um, Spanish main political forces will discover that together with Germany, uh, Spain is the only country, the only other country which will still have proper uh, conservatives and proper <laughs> progressives in government and a sizable uh, number of MPs in the European Parliament and therefore you should have an important position at the European Commission. So all the cards are on the table for um, a prominent position of Spain, even if it's as, as a counterbalance of the more conservative coalition that we will see emerging maybe likely after the next election. They will just have to learn how to play these and play them, you know, satisfactorily. And uh, how does it look from Warsaw, Piotr? You know, I, I think if PIS manages to stay in power, it will feel emboldened in its quite, you know, Eurosceptic position. And uh, because that, just imagine, you know, after eight years of uh, of the government, the, the party, despite all these problems, would manage to regain absolute majority or or govern the country uh, with, with a coalition partner. That would, uh, would be a very powerful sign that this political course, including its position on, um, on Europe, which is very sovereigntist, which is um, opposed to any further integration, which is you know, anti-German and and anti-Brussels, uh, that this uh, position pays off. And I think if uh, if we have Fico in Slovakia, if we have um, Orban in ba- Hungary and uh, Kaczynski again in, in in Poland, I think that that would be a major, you know, uh, maybe not not shift because this is already the reality, but uh, it will it will strengthen these these populist forces in Europe and uh, kind of prolong this this trend which we have seen over the last years. But I, at the same time, I think regardless of what happens in Poland, and this is again reminding me of 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 Spain and uh, Nacho has just said that uh, Poland will be extremely self-centered because uh, the the future PIS government won't be as powerful at the as the previous governments were, but the opposition-led government would be certainly very volatile, very, very weak. So so Poland will not play a very central role in the 
European politics in the next, um, I would say, 16, 18 months after the election because of its domestic political uh, kind of paralysis. And I think this is this is also uh, too important to lower a little bit the expectations that should Tusk win the election, Poland will be fully back because the, the, the priority will be to restore the rule of law based system and to basically dismantle the, the system uh, set up by, by, the, by the PIS. And this self-focus has also come out in kind of shocking detail in the Ukraine-Polish uh, context where, you know, people were absolutely surprised that Poland, which had been such a big champion of Ukraine, should be the country that blocks the, the grain deal and then even stops selling, sending weapons to, to, to Ukraine. Poland will not stop sending weapons. Poland is, has reduced its weapon deliveries to, to Ukraine because it has sent already so much that not much has been left to be sent. But but this is, of course, a very good illustration of, of, of this Polish internal uh, conflict. And I think it's something which, which we haven't discussed yet, but it's also important for the general outlook for the European politics, is the competition between the, the right, which is in Poland, the law and justice, the ruling party, law and justice, PIS, and the far right, the Confederacja, and this this Polish Ukrainian spat cannot be understood unless we uh, take into account that these two parties compete for the votes of of voters who are you know increasingly anti-Ukrainian or, or or skeptical about our support for Ukraine, and and I, I'm I'm afraid this will persist. And should the PIS lose the election? and uh, land in the opposition, I think we can even see a, a disintegration of this uh, of this camp to the benefit of the far right. So basically, yeah. the, the, the far right party could grow and could become stronger at the expense of the right. And that would also shift to some extent the balance at the European level between the tradition, I mean, this conservative ECR right and the identity group in the European Parliament. So we've seen that also in Spain, this kind of fight between the right and the far right. And, and I agree that's going to be one of the big topics going forward. But we are now out of time, unfortunately, for this. So we're going to have to come back to it in future podcasts. And there is still one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Nacho, what's on your bookshelf? I'm going to put two things on the table. One, it's the wonderful book by our council member, Leah Ippi, three you know, growing in the, after the end of history is such an incredible and delightful book to, to read. It's a, it's a long time ago since I read something which was so inspiring and so fresh and so nice. And the other one is Chip's War by, by Chris Miller, more into my work on geopolitics of technology with just one anecdote about how complicated it is to produce chips and how difficult it is to centrally command the market to produce chips. Steve Jobs approached the head of Intel at the time to ask him whether he would be interested in producing chips for him because he wanted to put microchips in a phone. And the head of Intel said that he didn't think this was a good idea. <laughs> that people wouldn't want phones with chips inside. And therefore, Steve Jobs had to create his own chips and so on, and therefore create a very successful market for small chips for phones and so on. So this is a lesson maybe for Thierry Berton and all the ones trying to write in Chips Act how chips should be produced. <laughs> What about you, Piotr? 
You know, because of the upcoming Polish election, I'm um, I'm reading a lot about Polish politics, and there is one book which is unfortunately at the moment only in Polish, but I think it should be translated into English. That's why I would mention that. And this is a book written by two Polish sociologists, Sławomir Sierakowski, who is also a frequent commentator in international media, and Przemysław Sadura, um, under the title "The Society of Populists." And this is a very, I think, interesting, very important contribution to the European international research on on populism, trying to explain this phenomenon in Poland um, on the basis of a very deep social research, a lot of also focus group interviews and um, opinion polls, analyzing in depth the Polish society, but against the background of the of the uh, international literature on on populism and, and the findings of other researchers. So I think this is that would be an from my side and encouragement for for some publishing houses in in Europe to to look at this book and translate it into English. Fantastic. We'll put links up to all those publications on our website at ecfr.eu and keep coming back to the website if you want to read what Piotr and Nacho are writing about their respective political situations as they develop in the in the weeks ahead. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please head to whatever platform you use to download this episode and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating. Uh, but for now, from Piotr, Nacho and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for our podcast is Anand Sunda and the editor of this episode is P.A. Jacobi. 